If you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. As today we're going to look at a study on really primarily it's just all about Jesus. And it, that's a really good place to be. Uh, you've probably heard this poem before, but I'm going to read it to you. It's worth uh, listening to. Regarding Jesus and just the way that he has impacted the world. It's called One Solitary Life. It was written by a man named Dr. James Allen Francis. It says this. It says, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of these things. None of those things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was then nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on planet Earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the most prominent figure in the history of human race. He's the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliament that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. You know, for those of you who are Christians, I mean, you know how awesome Jesus is. But for those who aren't, you look at just at history and you can see there is no one like him. You know, and that's important for us because as Paul's writing to the Colossian church, you know, they're struggling. Uh, they're being tempted to add to their faith. They're being tempted to go in different directions. And part of the reason is because someone was lying to them and telling them that Jesus wasn't enough, that Jesus wasn't sufficient. That you need to add, you know, uh, works and asceticism and legalism. And you need to add like mysticism and like maybe even start worshiping angels. And you need to worship other beings. And they started adding to it. And, and Paul here is writing to them and he says, no, you're a Christian. You are complete in Christ. You are sufficient. He is sufficient for you. Because sometimes I look at my own life, to be honest, and like I shared earlier, you know, I've failed, but he has prevailed. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. He's a winner. And, and so when I, when I fall, I thank God that I know in whom my confidence in, is in, is in Christ. And as Paul is writing about Jesus to the Colossian church, he wants them to know just how awesome he is. The one that you believe in, the one that loves you, the one that died for you. Notice how awesome he is. 
Look what it says here in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and notice for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here it is, that in all things he may have preeminence. This is a rich section of scripture regarding Jesus. And as we look at our study today, we're actually going to go down to verse 23. So let me give you a a quick outline. We're going to see, first of all, the revelation of Christ in verses 15 through 19. And so three things primarily stand out, although there's more. We're going to see he is the image of God. We're going to see he's uh, the head of creation and he's the head of the church. And so, you know, the revelation of Christ. And then we'll get into the reconciliation of Christians and how our sin separated us from God, but Jesus has reconciled us to himself. And we're gonna look at the amazing, amazing credentials of Christ. Now, I don't know why, uh, when I was thinking of credentials and thinking of individuals that kind of stand out, uh, maybe for their, uh, you know, to a certain extent, greatness. I don't know why I thought of uh, Shohai Otani. You guys know who he is, right? He's a, a, a baseball player that used to be on the Angels, and it broke my son's heart, but now he's on the Dodgers. And I was reading about him. He completed yet another historic campaign in 2023, becoming the first player in Major League Baseball history with 10 wins as a pitcher and 40 run home runs in a season as a batter. The first Japanese-born player to win a Major League home run title, leading the American League with 44 home runs. The first player in MLB history to win MVP by unanimous vote twice first time it's ever been done in the history of the major leagues uh the first japanese player to have the most popular major league baseball jersey sales and so what happened after the 2023 season he signed a 20-year i I think it's is this right 700 million dollar contract is that right and so um you know why did he make so much money because of his credentials you know, and, and yeah, you know, we, we look at that and I know it's just a baseball thing, but here Paul is giving the credentials of Christ. And as we look at this, uh, for me, I, I'm just like, Lord, this helps me a lot because I fail. I, I know who I am apart from you, but thank you, Lord, that you're the one that I believe in. We see that first thing there in verse 15 is that he is the image of the invisible God. You know, if you ever wondered what God the Father is like, then you just study his son, right? Uh, You just read God's word on the life of Christ and you'll be able to see what God is like. He's the image of God. It's not what God the Father necessarily looks like physically, 
Because God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, they don't have a body, right? So it's not about physical look. It's not the caricature of God. He's the revelation of the character of God. And in that way, if you're ever wondering what's God like, then you have to look at his son. You have to look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And then, and as you study the life of Christ, you know, how did he treat children? Oh, he welcomed them, didn't he? How did he treat uh, women? Oh, with respect and honor. They were prominent and dignity. They were in his ministry in a dignified way. How did he treat sinners? Oh, he was their friend and he died for them. You see, you begin to understand, well, what's God like by looking at his son? Unfortunately, the church, sometimes Christians, has misrepresented God. Well, you're supposed to be a God follower. Well, you don't do any of those things. Thank God that we have Jesus as our model. This is what God is like. Jesus is the image of God. The same thing is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is actually called the express image of God. And so when you look at this, and again, there's so much to this, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface today. But one person said, besides the obvious meaning of likeness, image implies not just representation, but manifestation. Jesus came as God in the flesh. And if you're ever wondering what's God like, then all you have to do is study Christ. John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what God is like. How many times have you sinned? And we sin over and over and over again. But the grace of God, Romans 5.20, it just washes us of our sins, and, and we're bathed in his blood, and he sees no sin when he looks at us. That's how good, he's filled with grace and truth. And so when you're wondering what God is like, you just look to his son. The, the Greek word right there, translated word, is the word logos, where we get our English word logo from, right? And so, you know, when you're wondering, well, you know, you guys know what a logo is, right? You, we've talked about this before, that check mark, uh, what's that a logo of? It's kind of like that. Nike, right? Nike, we got that on our shoes or, or the golden arches, what's that a logo of? McDonald's makes you want to have some of their french fries, right? Cheeseburger, I haven't had one of those in a while. But you guys know what logos are. Jesus is the logos. He is the image of the invisible God. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. And so we see this revelation of Christ. And and you know, the, the world, the people, sometimes Christians, they don't love. And it, and it breaks my heart to see the way that some so-called Christians don't love. And only the Lord knows whether or not they're saved. But God loves. Jesus loves. When I want to know what God is like, I don't look at other Christians. I have to look at, at Jesus, his love, his amazing mercy. 
I mean, what if he gave us what we deserve? Where would we be? I always talk up to the Lord every single day about this. Lord, thank you for not giving me what I deserve because if you did, I would be in hell headed for the lake of fire without hope forever and ever. But you've been so merciful to me. Why can't we be merciful to others? When you want to know what God is like, you look and you you see it in Jesus, his love, his mercy, his humility, his sacrifice. Think about it. God is a humble God. God is a sacrificial God, a friend of sinners. And yet at the same time, even though he was a friend of sinners, he was the holy one. You see, this is who God is like and there is none like him. You know, Philip, in John 14, 8, you might remember, he said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that's all we need. Show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to them, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? It's not that Jesus is the Father. It's just that he was just like his dad. And you see that in the life of Christ. When, when you're gazing upon him, you're gazing upon God. How many of you here have Jesus in your heart? This is who you have. You have God in your heart. He's the image of God. He's the head of creation. Look at verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, now the firstborn in, in Bible days, it ultimately referred to one who had ownership and blessing and authority in the family. You know, because sometimes like the JWs and others, they unfortunately will see it as just a, a you know, biological, you know, firstborn, literal, physical thing. We, we see that, we have that mentality, but to them it wasn't that. It was ultimately referring to ownership, blessing, and authority in the family. You know, it's interesting that in the early pages and portions of the Bible, the word firstborn was not taken literally. If you think about it, Isaac was not literally, physically the firstborn of Abraham. Ishmael was. But Isaac received the right of the firstborn. Jacob was not literally physically the firstborn of Isaac. Esau was. Joseph was not literally physically the firstborn of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. Reuben was. And so all these and many, many more in the Bible received the right of the firstborn, ownership, blessing, and authority, even though they were not actually the firstborn. And so you can't take this in that sense. We need to see it the way that it is in the scriptures. We need to see this passage and others that say this about Jesus being the firstborn. For example, Revelation 3.14 is just simply saying that Jesus has ownership and authority over all creation. Even David wasn't literally the firstborn. He was the lastborn, right? And yet he was granted the honor uh, to be called that. In Psalm 89 verse 20 where it says, I have found my servant David with my holy oil, and I have anointed him. And in verse 27, in reference to David, and I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so we, basically Paul is just saying, you got Jesus? You have Jesus? Jesus is enough. He's God. And he is the head of all 
creation. The firstborn over all creation. You know, Colossians 1.15, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In the New Living Translation, he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. As a matter of fact, John 1.3 says, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. And so we see what was made. Look at verse 16 here in Colossians 1. It says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And so he's the one who created everything in heaven and earth. That's the dimension that we live in. You know, they say there's close to two trillion galaxies out there. And then there is the other dimension that we can't see with these eyes. There's the heavenly dimension. When he's mentioning right here the the thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, that's all in reference to angels and ranks of angels. And so we, you know, we think, well, maybe there's a few angels over here and they kind of, that's what they look like. We have no idea all the different natures of angels. Last uh, Wednesday, we went over in Ezekiel chapter 1, these amazing cherubim with four faces, you know, and four wings and the way that they traveled. I mean, it's just amazing. Jesus created all these things. He created everything we can see and all those other things uh, that we can't see. You know, some of the angels that he made, of course, we know rebelled, they fell. Jesus made them all. So whatever you do, don't think that they have authority over him. He made them. And when he made them, do you guys remember how he did it? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let there be light. Jesus, the one that you have, the one that you trust in, the one that lives in your heart, is the one who spoke everything into existence by the power of his word. Even though we have failed, he has prevailed. Jesus is enough. We need to have this understanding. You don't need to go other places. You don't need to look to other religions, asceticism, legalism, mysticism. Oh, I need a deeper, whatever it might be. Those are lies from the enemy. Jesus is enough. He washes us from our sins. He's the creator of everything. This is why Paul is telling us this because they were unfortunately being tempted to go into this thing called Gnosticism and, you know, they were looking in different things and, you know, I'll be honest with you guys, man, I talk to a lot of Christians nowadays and people even that attend Calvary Chapel Almani and, you know, it, it, it concerns me because of the people that they're listening to on, online. YouTube, so distracted with, you know, self... Uh, propagated these guys who put themselves up as teachers and they're teaching weird things they're distracting they're dividing over the non-essentials of the faith and you know there's just a lot of things that you have to be careful with out there be careful because you know they try to take you the the wrong way you know oh you need to worship angels is what they were telling the colossian church why would we worship any aspect of creation Why would we worship an angel? Why would we worship a saint? Why would we worship the gold, the silver, the bling, or anyone or anything other than God? It makes more sense, right? Paul is saying to worship the creator. And at the end of the day, what he's saying is this, and it's a simple thing, and it's a question we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus first? 
Does he have the preeminence in my life? Because really, I'll tell you this, if anyone or anything, sometimes we even do it to ourselves, we make ourselves first. If anyone else is first, you're going to mess up your life. You will mess up your life. Possessions, ambitions, relations put before Jesus will mess up your life with the potential to ruin it. He, he not only made everything, he maintains everything. Look at verse 17, and Paul is really bragging on Jesus. Look, it says, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He existed before anything else, the New Living Translation says, and he holds all creation together. Now, when you study the nucleus of an atom, and this is interesting, this is why, you know, the more that we look into astronomy or biology, the more you look at the human cell or even the very atoms that, that compose everything, it, we, I think the more you realize that you have to have a creator. Well, when you study the nucleus of an atom, it doesn't really calculate scientifically. It's a mystery. Scientists have discovered that charges of the same sign repel. Do you guys remember when you were young, and I was looking for a magnet the other day, I couldn't find one, but remember when you try to put the magnets together and they, would, they wouldn't do it? And you would see, this is the human, at- this is what the atoms are. They consist of these things that repel. Protons mutually repel each other due to the same electric, they call it Coulomb force that allows them to attract electrons. And so, by itself, the Coulomb force between the protons and the nucleus would cause a nucleus to fly apart immediately. Hence, you have the atom bomb, which is able to split, right? And so scientists, they have theories about these things, about how it's held together, but they're just theories. They come up with things called atomic glue or mesons, or they speculate that it has to do with this thing called electromagnetism, but they're just theories. They have no answer on what holds everything together. And we know now as we read our scriptures that Jesus is the one that holds everything together. And if he were to ever let go, all he would have to do is let go and everything would fall apart. And what Paul is saying is, He's enough. He's enough. You don't need religion. You don't need all those other things. All you need is Jesus. He made everything. He maintains everything. He's awesome. You know, Kay Smith, the the wife of Chuck Smith, uh, one day, I I don't remember the exact context of it, but, but she heard someone saying that some person was awesome. And I don't know exactly how it all went down, but at the end of the day, basically what she said was, only Jesus is awesome. That word awesome should be exclusively used for only him. And this is what we see. You know, without him, our universe will fall apart and I was pondering this not just universally or globally or atomically but I was pondering this and I was I was I'm not just saying this I was pondering this personally and I realized how fragile life can be you know you think of your marriage you think of of anything going on the ministry you think of how fragile these things would be apart from him holding everything together 
Without Jesus, my life would unravel. Without Jesus, I would fall apart. Me, mentally, in every way. We have to understand who he is. The revelation of Christ, number one, the image of God, the head of creation, secondly, but not just the head of creation, the head of the church. Because look what we read here in verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And you might want to underline this because this is really where Paul was going, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That in all things he may have the preeminence. You know, the pastor is not the head of the church. That prophet's not the head of the church. The pope is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, of the body, right? And and none other than him. You know, we belong to him. We're going to be built by him. He said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You see, he's over creation and he's over the church. He's head of the church. He says he's the firstborn from the dead and that reveals that Christ is the first to rise in an immortal body. There were others that rose. Lazarus rose. You know, we have cases in the Old and New Testament where others were risen from the dead, but he's the first one to rise in a resurrection body. Uh, And again, alluding to the triumph over death. Who else do you know that defeated death? There's none other. There's no one like Jesus. Why are we learning this today? Why are we, you know, being... um, reminded of this today because I'll be honest with you I think we need to be reminded of not just the you know the eminence that he should have in our life but the preeminence that he should have in our life the father is pointing to his son the holy spirit is pointing to his son the church needs to point to God's son Because he is the mediator between God and man. There's none other like Jesus. You know, to be eminent means to be famous and respected. And I think sometimes people will look at Jesus like that, you know, within a particular sphere or profession. But to be preeminent means that he's first. He's the distinguished one. He surpasses all others. You know, sometimes I get down. I get discouraged, whatever. My blood pressure might rise or something. And, and, I, and I try to figure out, Lord, why? Why is this happening to me? And, you know, it, it might be because we just live in a fallen world and it will be like that. It will have our ups and downs. You can't change it. But I think many times the reason is because we took our eyes off the Lord. And we forgot who this is all about. It's not about me. Not about you. It's about him. And he does a good work in me and he does a good work in you. But that's how he does it. When we fix our eyes on him. You know, whatever you do, don't think that the Father is jealous. (laughs) Because look what it says in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. (laughs) 
And so the Father loves it when we exalt His Son and His Son has this blessing, this authority, this everything. As a matter of fact, um, this fullness is a real interesting word because that's what the Gnostics were using. They were using that to promote their religion and no, Paul is saying the fullness, everything is found in, in Jesus. I love what he says. If you go over to chapter 2, look at verse 9. Colossians 2, verse 9. It says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And it's not just a lesson on Christology. It's not just a lesson on you know, theology. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a truth that God wants us to ponder because he wants you to have that type of assurance. Because when I look in the mirror, I don't have it. When I look at myself, I don't have it. None of us should. Because none of us, the Bible says, Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness, the best that we could do is like filthy rags. We don't have it, but he does. And you are complete in him. And so Paul here, as he's writing about the revelation of Christ, he then gives us the reconciliation of Christians. Because notice again, He says in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether the things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. See, salvation is reconciliation with God. You know, by the blood of his cross, can you think of anyone today, I'm just curious, can you think of anyone today that you are, that you need reconciliation with? There's someone out there and there's a division, they're far away. You know what that's like. Unfortunately, uh, pastors hear about this all the time and we even experience it sometimes where there's a separation. They're, They're part of my family, but I haven't spoken to them in years. Why? Well, something went down. There needs to be reconciliation. I pray that somehow, some way, God would work it out to where they're back where they belong, especially family. But, you know, we can't always have that. As much as depends on you, we try to live peaceably with all men. But, but having that type of division uh, with people is one thing. But having that with God? Well, that's what happened when we sin. Our sin separates us from God, the Bible says in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. But in Christ, by his blood, that cross on Calvary, it reconciled us to God. So now we're friends again. We're family again. You know, we're the church again. We're cherished again. Because salvation is reconciliation to God. The only way it could happen, Hebrews 9.22 says, we get the forgiveness that we need by the shedding of his blood. You know, why would God do such a thing? Why would he give his son to die for us on the cross? Well, the Bible tells us in John 3, 16, because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe you're here today. There might be someone here today. You grew up, it was crazy. 
And you're still wondering, man, Lord, does anyone really love me? You know, sometimes you wonder about relationships. Are they in it only for what they can get out of it? You know, does, there's a really anyone who honestly loves me. I, I will say this. I'm blessed with many people that do, but I also know that I have a God who loves me. And that love, that type of agape love that God has is not the kind of love that we would typically have because we usually only love those who love us, love those who behave. But God loves us in the good days and in the bad days. Revelation 1.5 tells us, For God, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's how we're reconciled to God. You see, to make peace with former enemies happens by the blood when it comes between us and God. And now by faith, we're family, we're friends, we're his children, we're his church, we're his cherished, we're his bride, we're his body, we're his beloved. That's who we are, you guys. Christianity is the only religion in the world where it's not about your behavior, it's not about your works. You can't earn your way to heaven. We, we, we know that according to the Bible, only it's about his work and what he did. Verse 21 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now, there's this word again, he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You know, at one time, some of you guys maybe were raised in the church and it wasn't as dramatic. I know for me, I definitely remember my life before Christ and I can definitely see this clearly. You know, we were alienated. We were aliens in one sense from a bottom world, from a different world. We were strangers. We were foreigners to the promise. This would definitely apply to the Colossians, right? I mean, right here it talks about how we were God's enemies in our, in our mind. And think about the thoughts that we think. Think about how sometimes that right there, the, the things that go crazy. And, and, and not only that, uh, I've been talking to people, and you guys I'm sure do too, you talk to people who don't believe there is, an, there is, there is, even, there is even a God. You know, they're, they're atheists, they're, they're mind. I mean, to me, to think that there's no God, no creator, no designer, I believe that takes more faith than it does to believe in an irrational, intelligent being who created us. But that's their mind, that's their thinking, that's their belief, that they're out there. And, and then, you know, in their minds to think, well, well, Jesus, you know, I mean, there can't just be one way to God. There's got to be a whole bunch of ways to God. And, and Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so C.S. Lewis said, in all reality, when you look at all the claims of Christ, either he's a, a liar a lunatic or he's Lord. And we know he's Lord. But in their minds, they, they're alienated from God. The thoughts that they think that conceive evil, then it goes on and behaves in, in wicked ways. We were once there. We were enemies with God. And yet he reconciled us. And he, took, he busted the move, man. He was the first one, right? He came to us on Christmas Day. He came in, in the body of his flesh and again, 
you guys got to know this, you know, um, Jesus, Colossians, again, Gnosticism taught that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that there's no way that, you know, that could happen, that he came as a phantom, walking but not leaving footprints. No, Paul said he came in the flesh, he died on a cross in order to present us, it says in verse 22, holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I mean, that to me just, man, that just blows me away. You know, as I get older, I'm getting more blemishes. I don't know if it's, I don't know, cancer. I don't know. I'm getting all these spots and things are growing. I've got a brain right here and I don't know if I need to get it removed and stuff. And it just seems like the the blemishes are are getting worse. And, um, you know, you look at your body and, and God says, one day you will be presented before the fathers. Think about his, with his eyes of omniscience, scrutinizing every fiber of our soul and we will have no sin. None. Why? Because of your faith in Christ. There was a day, there was a moment, it was real, it wasn't just religion where you said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm not ashamed. Not ashamed. Paul here says one day he will present you faultless. Imagine that. Reconciliation, salvation. Imagine the presentation. And I'm reminded of the time in the book of uh, Numbers when Balaam was hired to curse the children of Israel. And, and, you know, he was hired by the king of, of Moab. Get, go up on the mountaintop and take a look at all of them and see if you can curse them. And he couldn't curse them. And then he tried again and he couldn't curse them. And then eventually he, he comes up with these words. He, he says, I see, God says, I see no sin in them. I see no iniquity in them. And, and when you read the Old Testament and you read the book of Numbers, I mean, they were, there was a whole bunch of sin in them. But because they were covered by faith in the covenant that would eventually shadow the cross of Christ, God saw no sin in their life in that positional standing. And understand, that's the way God sees us. Ephesians 1, 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You know, it's interesting what he says, um, that we are uh, above reproach in his sight. You know what that literally means? It literally means unaccused. Unaccused. Satan is the accuser. Jesus is the unaccuser. All those accusations that the enemy throws your way day after day, Jesus undoes them, undoes them, whatever the word is. And he is the unaccuser. You see, we have no sin because of him. You know, Isaiah 1, come and let us reason, he says. As we are smart, we are intelligent, there are scholars who are believers because they've experienced that God, they studied the Bible, they know Jesus rose from the dead. Come, let us reason, he says. Though your sins were as scarlet, you shall be as white as snow. And so, 
what we find right here, how wonder, it's just wonderful to be part of God's family, free and forgiven. But as Paul closes this section, I'll tell you what, he loves the people. He's not one of those guys who just says, well, I went up there, I taught the message, I went up there, I presented the material. No, he's one of those guys that says, I want, I want to make sure that these people are in heaven. That's my job. I want to go to heaven. And I want them to go too. Because I know we're living in a crazy world where Satan is a liar and the media and all this world that's coming against Christianity and what we believe about Jesus, they're trying with all their efforts to take you away from the Lord. And and as Paul here, you know, he shares, you know, I got to warn you though. Look at verse 23. Again, if we pick it up in verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. But then he uses the word if. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know, again, you might want to circle the word if. You guys, we have to continue in the faith. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you receive when you heard the good news. You know, people don't normally choose to drift away, but little by little, you know, I won't read today, I won't pray today, I won't obey today. I won't, you know, go to church or seek God or whatever the case may be. And little by little, they begin to drift away. Some people will say, well, you, you know, you can't drift away. You know, if you're a Christian, then you don't, you don't even need to worry about the word if. And you know what? I don't want to have an argument with you. I believe differently. I believe that a Christian uh, needs to abide in Christ. John chapter 15, it says, abide in me and I in you. If you don't abide, you know, it's like the, taking that branch out of the vine. Stay there. Keep believing till the day you die. Now, some would say, well, if they ever walk away, then they were never a Christian. And so at the end of the day, in one sense, it's kind of the same thing. You, you know, you're going to prove you're a Christian by staying where you belong. You're going to prove you're a Christian by believing until the day that you die. Because this God that we have is an awesome God. You know, Jesus, um, this amazing, amazing revelation of Christ leading to the reconciliation of Christians is such an awesome truth. You know, a couple of, of, of pages I want you to turn to real quick. The first one is over in John chapter 6. And look at verse 66. John 6, 6, 6. You guys can't forget that one, huh? It says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. I trip out, and I'm going to have to share this with you guys. That's the one thing that just gets a pastor down. You know, this one person, man, he, and God was working in their life, and they seemed so excited about the Lord. And now they, you know, they send me an email. You know, they're leaving the church. And, and you wonder if they're leaving the Lord. I mean, if you leave the church and you go to another good church, no problem, that's fine. It's not about what congregation you're a part of. But when you leave the Lord, I, I got an email yesterday concerning, very concerning, and it just, man, your heart is underneath your feet. And, I, and you wonder, like, where are you going to go if you leave Jesus? I mean, what could possibly be better than Jesus? Right here, the Lord, these disciples, they were walking with him no more, and, and he just, how about you guys? Are you going to leave? And then I love what Peter says, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And then one other verse, if you would turn to real quick, and that is Ephesians 3.17. Page 1,656. Because Paul in, in Colossians said something that to me is is very important, and, and I wanted to share this with you guys. He says, um, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and, and steadfast. Now, pastors will talk about this a lot. You need to be rooted and grounded. And I, and I think you need to be rooted and grounded in, in doctrine. I, I believe that. You gotta know what you believe, who God is, how we're saved, the Bible, you know, things like that. But I love what we read here in Ephesians 3:17. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. What can anchor my soul to him? His love. No one loves me like he does. But that's okay. His love is enough. And when we let that sink in, I know we won't go anywhere else. And so today we get to have communion and we get to celebrate this cross, amazing cross. And so I just thank God for that. If you're here and Maybe you've never accepted the Lord into your life like we're talking about today. I pray that today you would admit you're a sinner, turn from your sins, and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can do that right now. If that's you and you want to do that, I'll lead you in a prayer. Maybe you drifted away. God wants to bring you back. That's how much he loves you.